Section 5 of Early Kings of Norway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Early Kings of Norway by Thomas Carlyle. Section 5. Chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8. Jarls Eric and Svein. Jarl Eric, resplendent with this victory, not to speak of that over the Jomsburgers with his father long ago, was now made governor of Norway, governor, or quasi-sovereign, with his brother, Jarl Svein, as a partner, who, however, took but little hand in governing, and under the patronage of Svein Doublebeard and the then Swedish king, Olaf, his name, Sigrid the Proud, his mother's, administered it, they say, with skill and prudence for above fourteen years. Trygvason's death is understood and laboriously computed to have happened in the year 1000, but there is no exact chronology in these things, but a continual uncertain guessing after such, so that one eye in history, as regards them, as if put out. Neither, indeed, have I yet had the luck to find any decipherable and intelligent map of Norway, so that the other eye of history is much blinded withal, and her path through these wild regions and epochs is an extremely dim and chaotic one. An evil that much demands remedying, and especially wants some first attempt at remedying, by inquirers into English history, the whole period from Egbert, the first Saxon king of England, on to Edward the Confessor, the last being everywhere completely interwoven with that of their mysterious, continually invasive Danes, as they call them, and inextricably unintelligible till these also get to be a little understood, and cease to be utterly dark, hideous, and mythical to us, as they now are. King Olaf Tryggveson is the first Norseman who is expressly mentioned to have been in England by our English history-books, new or old, and of him it is merely said that he had an interview with King Ethelred II at Andover, of a pacific and friendly nature, though it is absurdly added that the noble Olaf was converted to Christianity by that extremely stupid royal person. Greater contrast in an interview than this at Andover, between heroic Olaf Tryggveson and Ethelred the forever unready, was not perhaps seen in the terrestrial planet that day. Olaf, or Olas, or Anlof, or Anlof, as they name him, did engage an oath to Ethelred not to invade England any more, and kept his promise, they farther say. Essentially a truth, as we already know, though the circumstances were all different, and the promise was to a devout high priest, not to a crowned blockhead and cowardly do-nothing. One other Olias I found mentioned in our books, two or three centuries before, at a time when there existed no such individual, not to speak of several Anlofs, who sometimes seem to mean Olaf, and still oftener to mean nobody possible. Which occasions not a little obscurity in our early history, says the learned Selden. A thing remediable, too, in which, if any Englishman of due genius, or even capacity for standing labour, who understood the Icelandic and Anglo-Saxon languages, would engage in it, he might do a great deal of good, and bring the matter to a comparatively lucid state. Vain aspirations, or perhaps not altogether vain. At the time of Olaf Tryggvason's death, and indeed long before, King Sven Doublebeard had always for chief enterprise the conquest of England, and followed it by fits with extreme violence and impetus, often advancing largely towards a successful conclusion, but never, for thirteen years yet, getting it concluded. He possessed long since all England north of Watling Street, that is to say, Northumberland, East Anglia, naturally full of Danish settlers by this time, were fixedly his, Mercia, his oftener than not, 
Wessex itself, with all the coasts he was free to visit, and to burn and rob in at discretion. There or elsewhere, Ethelred the Unready had no battle in him whatever, and for a forty years after the beginning of his reign, England excelled in anarchic stupidity, murderous devastation, utter misery, platitude, and sluggish contemptibility, all the countries one has read of. Apparently a very opulent country, too, a ready skill in such arts and fine arts as there were. Sven's very ships, they say, had their gold dragons, top-mast pennons, and other metallic splendors generally wrought for them in England. Unexampled prosperity, in the manufacture way, was not unknown there, it would seem. But coexisting with such spiritual bankruptcy as was also unexampled, one would hope. Read Lupus, Wolfstan, Archbishop of York's amazing sermon on the subject, addressed to contemporary audiences, setting forth such a state of things, sons selling their fathers, mothers, and sisters as slaves to the Danish robber, themselves living in debauchery, blusterous gluttony, and depravity, the details of which are well-nigh incredible, though clearly stated as things generally known. The humour of these poor wretches sunk to a state of what we may call greasy desperation. Let us eat and drink, for to-morrow we die. The manner in which they treated their own English nuns, if young, good-looking, and captive to the Danes, buying them on a kind of brutish or subterbrutish, greatest happiness principle, for the moment, and by a joint stock arrangement, far transcends all human speech or imagination, and awakens in one the momentary red-hot thought, The Danes served you right, ye accursed. The so-called soldiers, one finds, made not the least fight anywhere, could make none, led and guided as they were, and the generals were often enough traitors, always ignorant, and blockheads, were in the habit, when expressly commanded to fight, of taking physic, and declaring that nature was incapable of castor-oil and battle both at once. This ought to be explained a little to the modern English and their war secretaries, who undertake the conduct of armies. The undeniable fact is, defeat on defeat was the constant fate of the English, during these forty years not one battle in which they were not beaten. No gleam of victory or real resistance till the noble Edmund Ironside, whom it is always strange to me how such an Ethelred could produce for a son, made his appearance and ran his brief course, like a great and far-seen meteor, soon extinguished without result. No remedy for England in that base time, but yearly asking the victorious, plundering, burning and murdering Danes, how much money will you take to go away? Thirty thousand pounds in silver, which the annual Danegelt soon rose to, continued to be about the average yearly sum, though generally on the increasing hand. In the last year I think it had risen to seventy-two thousand pounds in silver, raised yearly by a tax, income tax of its kind, rudely levied, the worst of all remedies, good for the day only. Nay, there was one remedy still worse, which the miserable Ethelred once tried, that of massacring all the Danes settled in England, practically, of a few thousands or hundreds of them, by treachery in a kind of Sicilian vespers, which issued, as such things usually do, in terrible monotion to you not to try the like again, issued, namely, in redoubled fury on the Danish part, new fiercer invasion by Svein's Jarl Thorkel, then by Svein himself, which latter drove the miserable Ethelred, with wife and family, into Normandy, to wife's brother, the then duke there, and ended that miserable struggle by Sven's becoming king of England himself. Of this disgraceful measure, which it would appear has been immensely exaggerated in the English books, we can happily give the exact date, A.D. 1002, 
and also of Sven's victorious accession, A.D. 1013, pretty much the only benefit one gets out of contemplating such a set of objects. King Sven's first act was to levy a terribly increased income tax for the payment of his army. Sven was levying it with a strong-handed diligence, but had not yet done levying it, when at Gainsborough one night he suddenly died, once used to be said, by St. Edmund, murdered king of the East Angles, who could not bear to see his shrine and monastery of St. Edmundsbury plundered by the tyrant's tax-collectors, as they were on the point of being. In all ways impossible, however, Edmund's own death did not occur till two years after Sven's. Sven's death, by whatever cause, befell 1014, his fleet, then lying in the Humber, and only Canut, his eldest son, hardly yet eighteen, count some, charge of it, who, on short counsel, arrangement about this questionable kingdom of his, lifted anchor, made for Sandwich, a safer station at the moment, cut off the feet and noses, one shudders and hopes not, there being some discrepancy about it, of his numerous hostages that had been delivered to King Sven, set them ashore, and made for Denmark, his natural storehouse and stronghold, as the hopefulest first thing he could do. Canut soon returned from Denmark, with increase of force sufficient for the English problem, which latter he now ended in a victorious, and essentially, for himself and chaotic England, beneficial manner. Became widely known by and by, there and elsewhere, as Canut the Great, and is thought by judges of our day to have really merited that title. A most nimble, sharp-striking, clear-thinking, prudent, and effective man, who regulated this dismembered and distracted England in its church matters, in its state matters, like a real king. Had a standing army, house carls, who were well-paid, well-drilled, and disciplined, capable of instantly quenching insurrection or breakage of the peace, and piously endeavoured, with a signal earnestness, and even devoutness, if we look well, to do justice to all men, and to make all men rest satisfied with justice. In a word, he successfully strapped up, by every true method and regulation, this miserable, dislocated, and dissevered mass of bleeding anarchy into something worthy to be called in England again, only that he died too soon, and a second conqueror of us all, still weightier of structure, and under improved auspices, became possible, and was needed here. To appearance, Canut himself was capable of being a Charlemagne of England and the North, as has been already said or quoted, had he only lived twice as long as he did but his whole sum of years seems not to have exceeded forty. His father Sven of the Forkbeard is reckoned to have been fifty or sixty when St. Edmund finished him at Gainsborough. We now return to Norway, ashamed of this long circuit which has been a truancy, more or less. CHAPTER Nine, KING OLAF THE THICKSET'S VIKING DAYS King Harold Granske, who, with another from Russia accidentally lodging beside him, got burned to death in Sweden, courting that unspeakable Sigrid the Proud, was third cousin or so to Trygve, father of our heroic Olaf. Accurately counted, he is great-grandson of Bjorn the Chapman, first of Hagfarger's sons, whom Eric Bloodaxe made away with. His little kingdom, as he called it, was a district named the Greenland, Greenland. He himself was one of those little Harfager kinglets whom Hakon Jarl, much more Olaf Trygveson, was content to leave reigning, since they would keep the peace with him. Harold had a loving wife of his own, Asta, the name of her, soon expecting the birth of her and his pretty babe, named Olaf, at the time he went on that deplorable Swedish adventure, the foolish, faded creature, and ended self and kingdom altogether. Asta was greatly shocked. 
composed herself, however, married a new husband, Sigur Sir, a kinglet, and a great-grandson of Harold Fairhair, a man of great wealth, prudence, and influence in those countries, in whose house, as favourite and well-beloved stepson, little Olaf was wholesomely and skilfully brought up. In Sigurd's house he had, withal, a special tutor entertained for him, one Rain, known as Rain the Far-Travelled, by whom he could be trained, from the earliest basis, in Norse accomplishments and arts. New children came, one or two, but Olaf, from his mother, seems always to have known that he was the distinguished and royal article there. One day his foster-father, hurrying to leave home on business, hastily bade Olaf, no other being by, saddle his horse for him. Olaf went out with the saddle, chose the biggest he-goat about, saddled that, and brought it to the door by way of a horse. Old Sigurd, a most grave man, grinned sardonically at the sight. Ha! I see thou hast no mind to take commands from me. Thou art of too high a humour to take commands. To which, says Snorro, boy Olaf answered little except by laughing, till Sigurd saddled for himself and rode away. His mother, Asta, appears to have been a thoughtful, prudent woman, though always with fierce royalism at the bottom of her memory, and a secret implacability on that head. At the age of twelve, Olaf went to sea, furnished with a little fleet, and skilful sea-counsellor, expert old Rain, by his foster-father, and set out to push his fortune in the world. Rain was a steersman and counsellor in those incipient times, but the crew always called Olaf king, though at first, Snorro thinks, except it were in the hour of battle, he merely pulled an oar. He cruised and fought in this capacity on many seas and shores, passed several years, perhaps till the age of nineteen or twenty, in this wild element and way of life, fighting always in a glorious and most distinguished manner. In the hour of battle, diligent enough to amass property, as the Vikings termed it, and in the long days and nights of sailing, given over, it is likely to his own thoughts, and the unfathomable dialogue with the ever-moaning sea, not the worst high school a man could have, and indeed infinitely preferable to most that are going on even now, for a high and deep young soul. His first distinguished expedition was to Sweden, natural to go thither first, to avenge his poor father's death, were it nothing more which he did, the scalds say, in a distinguished manner, making victorious and handsome battle for himself, in entering Morel Lake, and in getting out of it again, after being frozen there all winter, showing still more surprising, almost miraculous contrivance and dexterity. This was the first of his glorious victories, of which the scalds reckon up some fourteen or thirteen very glorious indeed, mostly in the western and southern countries, most of all in England, till the name of Olaf Haraldsson became quite famous in the Viking and strategic world. He seems really to have learned the secrets of his trade, and to have been then and afterwards for vigilance, contrivance, valour, and promptitude of execution, a superior fighter. Several exploits recorded of him betoken, in simple forms, what may be called military genius. The principal, and to us the alone interesting, of his exploits seem to have lain in England, and what is further notable, always on the anti-Svein side. English books do not mention him at all that I can find, but it is fairly creditable that, as the North records report, in the end of Ethelred's reign, he was the ally or hired general of Ethelred, and did a great deal of sea-fighting, watching, sailing, and sieging for this miserable king and Edmund Ironside, his son. Snorro says expressively, London, the impregnable city, had to be besieged again for Ethelred's behoof, in the interval between Sven's death and young Canute's getting back from Denmark, and that our Olaf Haraldsson was the great engineer and victorious captor of London on that singular occasion, 
London captured for the first time. The bridge, as usual, Snorro says, offered almost insuperable obstacles. But the engineering genius of Olaf contrived huge platforms of wainscoting, old walls of wooden houses, in fact, bound together by withs. These, carried steadily aloft above the ships, will, thinks Olaf, considerably secure them and us from the destructive missiles, big boulder-stones, and other mischief profusely shower down on us, till we get under the bridge with axes and cables, and do some good upon it. Olaf's plan was tried. Most of the other ships, in spite of their wainscoting and widths, recoiled on reaching the bridge, so destructive were the boulder and other missile showers. But Olaf's ships and self got actually under the bridge, fixed all manner of cables there, and then, with a river current in their favour, and the frightened ships rallying to help in this safer part of the enterprise, tore out the important piles and props, and fairly broke the poor bridge, wholly or partly, down into the river, and its Danish defenders into immediate surrender. That is Snorro's account. On a previous occasion, Olaf had been deep in a hopeful combination with Ethelred's two younger sons, Alfred and Edward, afterwards King Edward the Confessor, that they should sally out from Normandy in strong force, unite with Olaf in ditto, and, landing on the Thames, do something effectual for themselves. But impediments, bad weather or the like, disheartened the poor princes, and it came to nothing. Olaf was much in Normandy, what they then called Walland, a man held in honour by those Norman dukes. What amount of property he had amassed I do not know, but could prove, were it necessary, that he had acquired some tactical or even strategic faculty and real talent for war. At Limfjord, in Jutland, but some years after this, A.D. 1027, he had a sea battle with the great Canute himself, ships combined with floodgates, with roaring artificial deluges, right well managed by King Olaf, which were within a hair's breadth of destroying Canute, now become a king and great, and did in effect send him instantly running. But of this more particularly by and by. What still surprises me is the mystery, where Olaf, in this wandering, fighting, sea-roving life, acquired his deeply religious feeling, his intense adherence to the Christian faith. I suppose it had been in England, where many pious persons, priestly and other, were still to be met with, that Olaf had gathered these doctrines, and that in those his unfathomable dialogues with the ever-moaning ocean, they had struck root downwards in the soul of him, and borne fruit upwards to the degree so conspicuous afterwards. It is certain he became a deeply pious man during these long Viking cruises, and directed all his strength, when strength and authority were lent him, to establish the Christian religion in his country, and suppressing and abolishing Vikingism there, both of which objects, and their respective worth and unworth, he must himself have long known so well. It was in A.D. 1016 that Canute gained his last victory, at Ashton in Essex, where the earth pyramids and antique church nearby still testify the thankful piety of Canute, or, at lowest, his joy at having won instead of lost and perished, as he was near doing there. And it was still this same year when the noble Edmund Ironside, after forced partition treaty in the Isle of Alney, got scandalously murdered, and Canute became indisputable sole king of England, and decisively settled himself to his work of governing there. In the year before either of which events, while all still hung uncertain for Canute, and even Eric, Jarl of Norway, had to be summoned in aid of him, in that year, 1015, as one might naturally guess, and as all Icelandic hints and indications lead us to date the thing, 
Olaf had decided to give up Vikingism in all its forms, to return to Norway, and try whether he could not assert the place and career that belonged to him there. Jarl Eric had vanished with all his war forces towards England, leaving only a boy, Hakon, as successor, and Sven, his own brother, a quiet man who had always avoided war. Olaf landed in Norway without obstacle, but decided to be quiet till he had himself examined and consulted friends. His reception by his mother Asta was of the kindest and proudest, and is lovingly described by Snorro. A pretty idyllic, or epic piece, of Norse Homeric type. How Asta, hearing of her son's advent, set all her maids and menials to work at the top of their speed, dispatched a runner to the harvest-field, where her husband Sigurd was, to warn him to come home and dress. How Sigurd was standing among his harvest-folk, reapers and binders, and what he had on, broad slouch hat, with veil, against the midges, blue kirtle, hose of I forget what colour, with laced boots, and in his hand a stick with a silver head and ditto-ring upon it, a personable old gentleman of the eleventh century in those parts. Sigurd was cautious, prudently cunctatory, though heartily friendly in his counsel to Olaf as to the king question. Asta had a Spartan tone in her wild maternal heart, and assures Olaf that she— with a half-reproachful glance at Sigurd, will stand by him to the death in this his just and noble enterprise. Sigurd promises to consult farther in his neighbourhood, and to correspond by messages. The result is, Olaf resolutely pushing forward himself, resolves to call a thing, and openly claim his kingship there. The thing itself was willing enough, opposition parties do here and there bestir themselves, but Olaf is always swifter than they. Five kinglets somewhere in the uplands, all descendants of Harfager, but averse to break the peace, which Jarl Eric and Hakon Jarl both have always willingly allowed to peaceable people, seem to be the main opposition party. These five take the field against Olaf with what force they have. Olaf, one night, by beautiful celerity and strategic practice which a Friedrich or a Turin might have approved, surrounds these five and when morning breaks there is nothing for them but either death or else instant surrender, and swearing of fealty to King Olaf. Which latter branch of the alternative they gladly accept, the whole five of them, and go home again. This was a beautiful bit of war practice by King Olaf on land. By another stroke, still more compendious at sea, he had already settled poor young Hakon, and made him peaceable for a long while. Olaf, by diligent quest and spy messaging, had ascertained that Hakon, just returning from Denmark in farewell to Papa and Knud, both now under way for England, was coasting north toward Trondheim, and intended on or about such a day to land in such and such a fjord towards the end of this Trondheim voyage. Olaf at once mans two big ships, steers it through the narrow mouth of the said fjord, moors one ship on the north shore, another on the south, fixes a strong cable, well sunk under water, to the capstans of these two, and in all quietness waits for Hakon. Before many hours, Hakon's royal or quasi-royal barge steers gaily into this fjord, is a little surprised, perhaps, to see within the jaws of it two big ships at anchor, but steers gallantly along, nothing doubting. Olaf, with a signal of all hands, works his two capstans, has this cable up high enough at the right moment, catches with it the keel of poor Hakon's barge, upsets it, empties it wholly into the sea. Wholly into the sea, saves Hakon, however, and his people from drowning, and brings them on board. His dialogue with poor young Hakon, especially poor young Hakon's responses, is very pretty. 
Shall I give it out of Snorro, and let the reader take it for as authentic as he can? It is at least the true image of it in authentic Snorro's head, little more than two centuries later. Jarl Hakon was led up to the king's ship. He was the handsomest man that could be seen. He had long hair as fine as silk, bound about his head with a gold ornament. When he sat down in the forehold, the king said to him, King, it is not false what is said of your family, that ye are handsome people to look at, but now your luck has deserted you. Hakon, it has always been the case that success is changeable, and there is no luck in the matter. It has gone with your family as with mine to have by turns the better lot. I am little beyond childhood in years, and at any rate we could not have defended ourselves, as we did not expect any attack on the way. It may turn out better with us another time. King, dost thou not apprehend that thou art in such a condition that, hereafter, there can be neither victory nor defeat for thee? Hakon, that is what only thou canst determine, King, according to thy pleasure. King, what wilt thou give me, Jarl, if for this time I let thee go, whole and unhurt? Hakon, what wilt thou take, King? King, nothing, except thou shalt leave the country, give up thy kingdom, and take an oath that thou wilt never go into battle against me. Jarl Hakon accepted the generous terms, went to England and King Canut, and kept his bargain for a good few years, though he was at last driven, by pressure of King Canut, to violate it, little to his profit, as we shall see. One victorious naval battle with Jarl Svein, and his adherents, who fled to Sweden after his beating, battle not difficult to a skilful, hard-hitting king, was pretty much all the actual fighting Olaf had to do in this enterprise. He various times met angry bounders and refractory things with arms in their hand, but by skilful, firm management, perfectly patient, but also perfectly ready to be active, he mostly managed without coming to strokes, and was universally recognized by Norway as its real king. A promising young man, and fit to be a king, thinks Snorro. Only of middle stature, almost rather shortish, but firm-standing and stout-built, so that they got to call him Olaf the Thick, meaning Olaf the Thick-Set or Stout-Built, though his final epithet among them was infinitely higher. For the rest, a comely, earnest, prepossessing look, beautiful yellow hair in quantity, broad, honest face, of a complexion pure as snow and rose, and finally, or firstly, the brightest eyes in the world, such that, in his anger, no man could stand them. He had a heavy task ahead, and needed all his qualities and fine gifts to get it done. End of section 5. Early Kings of Norway. Chapters 8 and 9.